Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to an episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast. And I'm so excited to have you here with me today because we are going to be talking all about behavior. What is telling us about our kids, what they need from us in those moments when they are having a hard time and how to help them and ourselves through this. And we have a great expert who's going to help us have this conversation. I want to introduce you to Lauren Spiegelmeier. She is parenting and education consultant and runs the beautiful website, The Behavior Hub. And Lauren, I'm so glad to have you with me. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on here. It's a pleasure to join. Yeah. Why don't you tell us, just to get us started, a little bit about who you are and what you do? Of course. Yeah. So I run The Behavior Hub. It's an organization that works with schools and with families to address needs around challenging behavior. And we do so through this very holistic, whole body approach. So those psychological supports, We embed nutrition and we also do exercise in there to all go together to help kids to neutralize more naturally. And when I'm not doing that awesome work and course creating for that and coaching and teaching on there, I am course creating and teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. I work on there and and develop their trauma uh, informed education program. Oh my gosh. Beautiful. I feel like you're doing it all. That's amazing. Try to. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming to chat with us today. I think one of the things that parents really need support with, and I know that I've needed support with myself from time to time because I've got a strong-willed, spirited daughter who has some challenging behaviors. And I kind of wanted to just dig in to when we are seeing those behaviors with our kids. So if they're calling their sister a name, they're refusing to do their schoolwork. I know lots of parents are having that happen right now, with especially with kids still going to virtual school. Um, they're refusing to log on. They are maybe lying about what they have done for their homework. Maybe they are just yelling or name calling at home with the parents. Maybe there's hitting, kicking. So when we see these challenging behaviors, and they are challenging, they're triggering, they push our buttons. What's going on there for the kids? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think something we share is it's communicating something. So we have to try and figure out what is the need that that behavior is communicating something. And I think we so quickly just want to like jump in and fix it and reverse it and change it. And stop it. Yeah. Stop the behavior. Yeah, for sure. Especially when it's driving us crazy or it's it's making us become more stressed uh, or overwhelmed. 
But I think, and sometimes this can't be done in the moment because you are too stressed out, but afterwards, or if you can in the moment, there are five general need areas that we can identify behaviors falling into. So it could be the need for control, which I think right now is a lot. And that, mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. So much of the world is out of control right now. So that falls over into kids trying to do everything they can to keep control in their own lives. So that, that's not logging on. That's something they can control. So like, I don't have control here, but I'll get control there. So control is one. The need to emotionally or self-regulate, which again, I think is another area that a lot of kids are, are having some concerns mm-hmm. in right now. And that's because of the overwhelm and the stress of what's going on. And then you've got maybe a sensory need. So just thinking about how does sensory play into this? You might have an attachment or a relationship need. So maybe a child's just seeking that relationship with you or siblings or someone else. They need that attention. And the last of which is a physical need. So are they hungry? Are they tired? Mm. Are are all of their needs, physical needs getting met? Yeah. Okay. So I love that you're breaking it down into these five areas. Like how, as a parent in the moment when this is happening, how can we figure that out? Yeah, it's tough for sure. So I just, what I try and do is I, like, at first I kept visuals. Like now I have the five needs memorized, but if I didn't have them memorized, I might put sticky notes around my house to remind me of the five needs. So if I'm in the dining room at the table and they're having a behavior, I might have a, like a sticky note reminder of these are the five needs. So when that behavior happens, I quickly scan those five needs areas. I'm like, okay, which one of these are they? Why do I think this behavior is happening right now? Uh, okay, loss of control. So then I had to quickly flip gears and think about how can I respond to this behavior to give the child back some control? Because if that's what they're seeking right now, that's what they need. And if I can get them to comply and still give control, then we both win. And and there are some easy ways to do that. Like even offering fair and motivating choices to a child for how to do something or when to do it or where to do it gives them some level of control. Like if they don't want to log on, I might say, well, would you rather do your schoolwork, you know, on the couch or in your bedroom? The choices are neutral. They're fair. They're motivating. And they're not thinking about not doing it. They're thinking about which location they'd like to work in. And you're partnering with the child, right? You're coming alongside them, seeing their need for control and offering it while still staying in within like the bounds of your expectations for the kiddo, right? Okay, so that's in the moment. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my experience for some kids, actually for many kids, attempting to do some of that work in the moment is really hard. It's hard for the parent because they're overwhelmed by the kid's behavior, but it's also hard for the kid because the kid's got a lot going on. If they're dysregulated, if they've got some like a need for regulation, it's really hard to drop into kind of rational thinking. So I was curious if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what's going on in a kid's brain and maybe even in our brain and in our nervous systems as we are moving through these spaces and why circling back can be helpful, like not trying to do all of this necessarily in the moment. And changing the way that we respond as parents or adults, it's kind of like learning a foreign language. Like it's so new to us and it's so unfamiliar and almost in some ways uncomfortable. You're going to mess it up. Like you do that when you're in a foreign country and you're learning, like you do it all the time. So giving yourself grace for times when you don't get it right. And that's fine. You're learning, they're learning, we're all learning. And then just kind of reflecting and thinking about how can I change that for next time? How can I make improvements for next time? In those needs areas too, it's not always just one. Like you could double up, like the need might be control and self-regulation. But I think working on those things preventatively too, when we can't do it in the moment and there's too much elevation and, and heat going on there, working on it preventatively beforehand when they are calm yeah, or later when they're calm again. 
But essentially what's going on in the, the child's brain, there's a really great hand signal. It's developed out of Dan Siegel's work, but it's actually from Georgetown <laughs> University. They took it and like really brought it down to a much more simplified level. So they tuck them fingers on top of your thumb and... You guys can't see Lauren, but she's making a fist with her thumb tucked in to the fist and her fingers, her forefinger is over top of her thumb. And you have maybe seen videos of me where I'm using this same signal to demonstrate this. So I have a video on my Instagram page, for example, that shows this signal. But yes, keep going. Explain it to us. What's happening here? You're tucking your thumb across your hand and then you're wrapping your forefingers around your thumb. And it's a child's brain. And the thumb represents what George Chan would call the barking dog. So it's your emotional control center. And what's happening in those moments where the children are displaying behaviors is that the dog barks. So then you use your thumb to show like a dog barking. And it means emotional elevation. And when that happens, the four fingers across the top who represent the wise owl or the thinking brain, they get scared by the barking of the dog and it flies away. Oh, I love this analogy. I've never heard it explained just so beautifully like this. This is the way you could explain it to your children too. Yeah. Yep, Lauren, if it's okay with you, I'm going to post a video of you explaining it on when this episode goes out so people can see sure. what you're doing because it's Absolutely. so helpful. It okay. is helpful. It's visual. Essentially, what, what that means then is like, if dog is barking and it's scared away the wise owl and it's, you know, if a child is emotionally elevated and their logic and their thinking is like not, it's not accessible. Like mm-hmm. you have to calm the barking dog. You have to get them to like calm down first before you can have any type of rational conversation or redirection or anything like that. Because if they don't have access to their thinking brain, they can't even understand, hear, follow through, make a move. So the first step is just to get that dog to stop barking, get yeah. the emotional energy to just come back down. Yeah. And I, I think it's so important to understand too, as parents, is that we have a barking dog often t- too. And so, and kids are still, you know, especially our youngest ones who are five and under, they're still very regulated by our state, you know, that our state of mind, our kind of our physiological regulation is something that they are very attuned to still. And so if we are triggered or upset by what's going on, and we've got a barking dog in our brains and our wise owl has also fled the building, then we're really stuck, right? Like then it's because how on earth can we help the kids barking dog calm down and have them return to a kind of rational thought? We ourselves aren't there, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's so important for me to, you know, as a systems thinker, so my, you know, my degree is in family systems. Kids are never in isolation. They are always embedded in the system that they're in. And the adults that they are um, being cared for, their teacher, their parents are a huge part of their experience, you know, and so it's so important to remember that like our state and their state are not happening in isolation, right? There's feedback loops there. Okay, so then how do we go about calming the barking dog for our kiddos and for ourselves? Yeah, it would be easier to do adults first because we have a little bit more emotional maturity. We should have more parts of our brain fully developed. So it, it should be a little bit easier for us to calm ourselves. Though, when we are in constant states of stress or anxiety, we tend to jump into one or the other sides of the nervous system, which again, makes it hard to think clearly. And that becomes a more stable state for us. So it's even more important now that we find ways to neutralize so that neutralizing and getting back to balance and equilibrium is our stable state and not one of those heightened energy states. Yeah. And I think it is so important to note here too, that yeah, we have more experience in the world more time having spent, you know, 
trying to regulate our emotions, but most of us didn't learn how to do this as kids. Most of us have really poor mechanisms for attempting to return to calm. We stuff, we dismiss, we push away, you know, we berate ourselves, we shame ourselves, we judge ourselves as in an attempt to regulate our emotions. But that's not really what you mean by regulation, is it? That's not how we actually (laughs) downregulate. No, yeah. you think about two for, for each child, even like within your own family, like each child within your family might need a different response tool and you would need something different, maybe based on what motivates you, what you enjoy, what you like. So like, for example, for me, when I feel like I'm in those heightened states, I will do a couple of things. So if I have access to it, I will just step outside for a few minutes, yeah. step outside, get some fresh air, take some deep breaths in 30 seconds to a minute. I can come back and that works well for me. That may not work well for someone else. Some deep breathing could work well for some people or it may not. Getting a drink of water could be helpful. A crunchy or a chewy snack can be really like de-escalate the jaw muscles and can really be helpful. Maybe it's turning on a song and for a minute dancing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's doing some like physical exercise. Like maybe you can just do some like wall push-ups or like some squats or something just to get your blood pumping and get your oxygen going through your system and just to really bring you down. So I've been thinking about like what kind of feels good to you? Like what are some things that you do as an adult that when you do them, you feel really good? And can you embed like micro snippets of that into your day when you're feeling stressed out? Yes. Oh my gosh. I love this. And so this is like almost like preventative maintenance. You know how we hear with kids, we, you know, need to spend, you know, 10 to 20 minutes a day connecting with them as a form of preventative maintenance to build that strong connection. But we have to be doing this with ourselves too. And I think that parents, you know, think like, we're talking about self-care here, but I mean, we're talking about real self-care and we're talking about sustainable self-care, self-care that's built into the rhythm and the fabric of your life kind of self-care. Like I have a little bit of a tea ritual that I do that's soothing and calming. So every time I feed my kids, I also make myself a cup of tea. And there's a part like when I'm preparing their meal where I'm mindfully, like as a kind of almost a meditative practice where I'm preparing a cup of tea for myself. And that's just built into the rhythm of our day and is always a touch point for me to, you know, if we think about, we all have these kind of windows of tolerance. And when our window of tolerance is narrowed, we are more reactive. We can, are less able to flexibly handle the stressors of being a parent and, little practices like what you're talking about widen that window and then they're on hand and are practiced and almost habits for when we are overwhelmed, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And we might use them more reactively initially. Like you'll, you'll feel the, the sensation and you're like, okay, I need to use that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it will be too strong and it will override and you won't use the practice and that's fine. That's where you give yourself grace. And you're like, okay, I didn't use it. It's okay. Next time I recognize I didn't use it. So next time I'm going to try and use it. And then you may remember it next time. And then you feel good and you get that motivation, all those happy chemicals in your body. And like, I felt good. I'm going to use that again. <laughs> and it becomes, like you said, a habit or a pattern that, that is, becomes more natural. And then what the ideal thing to do is once you've got that kind of figured out in, in that reactive response is trying to shift it and make it more preventative. So like even embedding those things before, like if you know a certain time of your day is going to be more stressful, like go ahead and do those things before that moment even comes up. Like if you know breakfast is going to be stressful, go ahead and go outside and like take your deep breaths or whatever before breakfast starts. So you're already like grounded and feeling good before you go into breakfast. Yes. This is something that I use. So one of my kids does not transition off of screen time well. So when her show is ending, I always go and join her five minutes before ending but in the five minutes before that five minutes before I do something for myself 
to, you know, center myself, make my, a plan for myself, refocus on this is what happens sometimes. This is how it goes sometimes. This is what it, I'll do if it goes this way and I'm prepared for it. And then I go in and am better able to handle that situation. Oh, I love this. Okay. So I think that it's hard sometimes for parents. We don't know what soothes us. I love that you're inviting folks to, to find that out for themselves, to figure out like, what is it that helps me feel calm? What is it that feels good to me? What is something I can do to bring myself back to center, back to balance? I love Absolutely. that. This is an area I recognize that a lot of adults don't necessarily know. Yeah. So we had actually, that's one of the courses, the self-care course goes through like a whole personality profiling. So you take like multiple personality types, quizzes and you record that data and then you go through and you find like the similarities between the personality types yeah. and that will drive you to your like core values and things that really make you feel good. And that, that list then is like, okay, here are all the things that I do or that I like, or that I enjoy. I now have them in front of me. I just need to align my calming and coping mechanisms to this list because now I know what the things are. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I also, I encourage my clients and students to do something similar. And then once they have it to make kind of like a, a menu for themselves mm-hmm. of things that are kind of like the appetizers or the tapas that are little pieces that hold you over to the bigger stuff. And then the main courses and then the desserts, you know, like I like posting it like you would a takeout menu on your refrigerator, you know, and having it available for yourself. So good. Okay, so then how does all of this translate then to our kids? So once we've got our wise owl back in line, back at our disposal, how do we help our kids? Yeah, absolutely. So similar approach, like they may not, again, know what it is that they like that calms them that feels good. So it's a little bit of like intentional watching. Like I, I try and watch kids um, do some observations of like, okay, they're playing that game. That game really seems to keep them mellow or calm and just kind of making note of those, those things that I see in the environment and then asking them because sometimes they do know, sometimes they know more than we realize. So they might know what makes them feel good and what makes them calm down. I think they often just, know more than yeah. realize than we give we're them designed credit for. To. Yeah. yeah. Our human biology is like knows it. We just don't always, we're not able to like always pull it out or say it. We do have the answers inside of us. I believe that as well. I think that we are so, kids are so used to us not asking them to. They don't even know sometimes that they know. Until we start consistently asking them, encouraging them to check in and think about them and listen to their intuitions for themselves. And I think those are beautiful skills to be building with our kids. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, you're so fine. That was good. It was a great interjection. I don't notice something in the environment and they don't give me enough data themselves. Then what I'll do is I'll start to just share options that I know of. So there could be things like, I mean, there are all types of breathing. Like sometimes breathing isn't motivating for kids, but you can find ways to make breathing more motivating. Like for young kids, there are all kinds of like animal breaths, interactive breaths, things that they can blow on, blow in, like so yeah. many options. One of my favorite ones is to have a big bowl of water with a little bit of soap in it and have them blow bubbles through a straw bubbles. in through the nose and out through the mouth. Those are, it's a great way to, and that kids like love who, what kid doesn't like to blow bubbles in a bowl of water, you know? Absolutely. The straw is a great point. Cause I heard this at a seminar one time that when you breathe in your nose and out through a straw, the ratio is like one to two and you, you want to breathe yeah, a lot yeah. slower out than you do in. So yeah. It forces, forces an out. 
yeah, yeah. it forces an out like a draw like a longer out breath which yes. is good and shifts you into a different nervous system pathway into absolutely. A, yeah so yes yeah absolutely awesome. i love that well good well so i did want to ask a little bit so we've been focusing on kind of how to kind of get kids calm and back to balance and i know that you and i feel similarly about how behavior is a form of communication there is a lot of focus, I think, in the parenting world on how to get kids to stop doing challenging behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I like that so far, our conversation has been more focused on understanding the challenging behaviors, understanding what's the underlying cause for the challenging behaviors. I think that that's a really important part of the conversation. But there's still, I think, a tendency, a very natural and normal tendency for parents to want the behaviors to stop, you know, to want compliance. I heard you use the word comply earlier. They to want compliance, to want the to not see those behaviors as much anymore. And so they look for methods that stop behaviors. And I, I'm just kind of curious about what you think about that. Like when we focus on reducing behaviors versus maybe some of the things that we've been talking about so far. Yeah, my concern with like our impulsive desire and um, still even like having this background in that way too. Like, I just want the screaming to stop. Oh, um, me too. For sure. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, Lauren, I, I, everybody who listens regularly knows that my k- kids are always pretending to be dragons and they're loud. <laughs> dragons are loud. And sometimes I just want there to not be dragons in my house. Absolutely. Yeah. So of course yeah. this desire to just stop is there all the time. Yeah. All right. I interrupted you. <laughs> no, you're fine. I love those interjections because they're so funny. And they're so personal. And they're these lived experiences. But I think when we just focus on stopping the behavior, my concern becomes, will that behavior just manifest itself in a different way? Like we may stop this one pathway of behavior, but because the need hasn't been met, because we haven't gotten to the underlying cause of the behavior, will it just shift and display itself? Like maybe we stop the child from screaming, but now do they start hitting or, you know, just, just yeah. transfer? Yeah, there's different methods for approaching behaviors. And there's a very behavioral approach to getting a behavior to stop. And we can get behaviors to stop in the short term using things like punishments, rewards and timeouts, kind of more behavioral approaches to Mm -hmm. challenging behaviors with kids when they're used properly that there's research to show that they do work and I'm using work with quotation marks, um, because the behaviors stop. And I just was hoping that maybe we could just have a little bit of a conversation about what do we mean when we say the word work, right? So like when we want to know, like, is this going to work? Oftentimes we mean, is the behavior going to stop, right? I was hoping that we could just, I don't know, talk about and maybe give parents a different understanding of a way to conceptualize work. We know something is working, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, it goes back to that five needs areas. And like if we get, like if a child is seeking attention and we just get them to stop nagging us because we want to stop the behavior and that need has never been met. then I just wonder like in the future, because of the way we responded to that, like, are they still going to seek attention from other people in other ways and in appropriate ways? Like it would be better to think about what the need is, make sure the need is met 
And that way in the future, that need isn't still coming up for them in different ways and inappropriate ways or ways that can be more hurtful or harmful. So I just thinking about the long term because the the short term is like stop the behavior, but what's the long term impact of just stopping the behavior? Right. I think the focusing on kind of the long game is so important. And I think also that a lot of the techniques that get you quick results, like fast Mm -hmm. in the moment, stop results. They don't actually teach the kid what to do instead right? They don't teach the skills. Many of us really believe that when kids have challenging behaviors, it happens because they don't really have the skills that they need to meet the expectations Mm -hmm. in that moment. They don't have the, you know, the either the self-regulation abilities or the communication abilities or kind of what they need to be able to tell us without those behaviors what they need in that moment. That really they just have uh, like these kind of Dr. Ross Green calls them unsolved problems and lagging skills that are getting in the way, you know. And so a timeout might make them stop nagging us, you know, Mm -hmm. or if we say, you know, for every time you ask me that question again, if they're asking the same question over and over again, every time you ask me that question, I'm going to take away one minute of screen time. That may stop them asking the question, Mm -hmm. but like question asking like that usually is a form of connection seeking a behavior, right? Like you said, that need is not, it doesn't teach them how to say, hey, mom, I really would love you for to just chat with you for five minutes. Will you sit down with me? Like, I mean, I think if a three-year-old said that to their mom, their mom would be like, oh yeah, I'll sit down with you. I want to hear exactly what you say. But instead we get the like, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And we don't see it as this is my kid asking me, to sit down and have a moment of community with them, you know? Like, and so yeah. look to just get it to stop and it doesn't teach them the skills they need. I don't know. I feel like I just went a little bit on a tangent there. No, but. I, I completely agree with you though. I mean, like again, the long-term effects and what are we doing to meet those needs so that they don't keep coming up again and to build that relationship because it's so important. And then to also give them the skills that they need to thrive in everyday life. Like, we are have these kids that are growing into young adults and they don't understand how they feel and they don't understand what needs they have and that aren't getting met and how to meet them appropriately. And then we have people who are in the world who just don't understand how to respond and deal with emotions and don't understand why certain behaviors are happening. But if we start that at a young age and we do our best to not just respond and react to stopping the behavior, but actually teaching them skills, it'll make them so much more successful later in life, which I think all parents want. Like we want our kids to be independent, successful, empathetic, compassionate beings. And that starts with in childhood, teaching them, you know, why these behaviors are happening and how to stop them and how to get the needs met and all of those things. Instead of just jumping to like, stop. And then they question things as adults. Like, I don't know what I'm feeling or what I'm doing or why I'm acting this way. Yeah. I think it's so important to focus on that long game perspective. You know, for, I think when we think about like, is this going to work? When is this going to work? And if we are saying that to ourselves, as we are making efforts to change our parenting, we have to spend a little time on, just even just journaling about like, what do I mean by work? What does work mean? You know, and I mean, I think even like we have, I know we have educators who listen to this podcast too. Like that is the same in the classroom Mm -hmm. too. Like, when is this going to work? Is this approach going to work? I think we really have to spend time thinking about like, 
what do we mean by work? What is our actual goal here? And purposely moving beyond a short-term goal. I mean, of course, right. there's times when short-term girls goals have to take precedence. Like if a three-year-old's running towards the street or, Absolutely. you know, a five-year-old is hitting your, the three-year-old in the class, you know, or somebody's throwing something. Like, yep. of course, we need no, immediate stopping, you know, like those are things where that has to happen. But when there's time, when it's not an emergency, you know? Right. I think it's like the, the neural connection, like to, to go a little bit sciencey and oh, well, like, please go sciencey. We love it here. We love nerding out on science here. <laughs> Your brain is making these, it's like firing and these connections are wiring together and that becomes your default then like your default pathway your default behavior and what's happening is like when we just stop these behaviors those neural connections aren't necessarily being made they're just being like cut off Mm -hmm. but if we instead nurture these choices and these behaviors and these things that these neural connections are made and then when we do it again it gets stronger and it gets stronger and it gets stronger and this becomes our default pathway and we want this to become our default pathway not this broken pathway or this very insecure pathway that is just stopping the behaviors from happening. So we want to essentially change our child's brain chemistry. Like we want to create these neural networks, these strong connections that wire them in the direction for success later in life. And sometimes those quick fixes don't do that. Oh my gosh. It's so beautifully stated. Yes. That's what we're doing, right? As parents, we are wiring their brain. Yeah. Okay. So can we go a little bit deeper into kind of how to go about building kind of those good supportive pathways for our kids, helping them build those strong neural connections that are going to be supportive for them as they grow? Yeah, for sure. I think that starts with us and the adults and the family and think about like, what are your family? Like I always have families go through this activity of family values. Like what do you, what are like three to five things that you value as a family? Okay. Then let's break that down into okay, these are your values. So these are these broad concepts, but for kids to be able to understand them, like maybe like respect is a value. Like we we are respectful as a family. Okay. What does respect look like in all areas? What does respect look like in the grocery store, at school, in the kitchen, at bedtime, and and just kind of breaking it down to like, what are the behaviors that fall into each of those areas? And then we slowly start to teach kids those expectations, what those behaviors look like and reinforce them. And by doing so, we are making those connections and we're wiring those connections that those other behaviors happen and that they fall under this, this value category. So now these children are developed neurologically to be respectful, be kind, be courteous, like whatever, you know, again, your family yeah. values are, but it also takes a lot of shifting with us as well. Like there, there are those mirror neurons. So what <laughs> we do becomes what they do. So we, they're we learning sure through modeling. Mirroring. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, that many of our defaults, the things that were wired in us as children and have been wired kind of repeatedly as we age, that those defaults often undermine some of our deeper values and goals. You know, so if we are one of our values in our family is that we are respectful of each other, but then we tell our kids, you know, that they can't wear what they want to to school or, you know, we get in there and we're controlling with them or we shame or punish them because of how we were parented, how we think it's supposed to go, then sometimes our practices, I think, don't always align with what we state our values to be. You know, kids are so good at spotting hypocrisy. My kids give us feedback all the time where like, so being respectful of everybody, like that's a big value in our family. And there are plenty of times where unintentionally we are not respectful of their bodies or of, you know, their needs in those moments. And my kids are so good at giving us that feedback. You know, like, mom, I feel like you're not listening to me. Mom, my needs matter too. You know, like just beautiful language of advocating for themselves. 
Yeah. And you, and you can do a little like check-ins and reflect, like, like <laughs> I encourage the families to family dinner, like bring up your values. Like can we all think of one way we were respectful today? Can we think of one way we can grow? Like just having little points of reflection for both them and for you to make sure that you're all staying on track and and holding each other accountable. Yeah, I think that that's so important. I know too that you you like to talk about communication and communication that was, you know, we've been talking about how kids have these stress responses and we've been talking about the barking dog and the wise owl. What are some ways, and then that all ties into our nervous system. And if we've got a kid's mm-hmm. nervous system is on high alert and highly activated, how can we go about, what are some communication strategies that we can use to help them come down? Yeah, we want to use things to keep that barking dog from um, starting to bark and there are uh, there's yes. different ways to do that. So I developed a whole course on like my top seven, the ones I've developed or read about. So maybe just a few of those, I'm trying to think which ones we would use. Oh yeah. Those. Don't share, you know, we can't, don't All overwhelm us. We'll, just, yeah. we'll, we'll share <laughs> some of the secrets. <laughs> yeah. I think, oh gosh, one of, I probably my favorite one. And this one's can be hard for families and for adults because it, like you have to tap into your inner child and kind of mm-hmm. allow yourself to, to be vulnerable here. But the one I probably use most frequently is humor. So how can I embed humor to get compliance, to get kids to shift or change behaviors or listen? And the reason being is because when you add humor, and I'll give you an example here in a second, and the dog is barking or not yet barking, humor takes a child from their emotional brain up into their thinking brain. And same for adults. So like if you are really upset by something and you get exposed to like a funny gif or funny meme or something funny, it will shift you up into your, your thinking brain. So I try and use that one a lot. It gets kids out of this brain and gets them into their thinking brain. But an example for young kids, like an easy way for me to do this, because again, if you're stressed out in the moment, it's kind of hard to act funny or be funny. I would just make objects talk. Like, for example, <laughs> like a child, I remember a couple years ago, he would come in, his mom would pack his lunch and he would always want to eat the snacks first. He wouldn't want to eat the good food first. So the teacher would always take his snacks until he ate the good food and they would just sit there and not eat lunch and they wouldn't have lunch. Poor so... Kid. And he would get it later, but it was a whole ordeal. And I was like, let's just try something here. So I think he had like some grapes or something in his lunchbox that she wanted him to eat first. So I started making his stomach talk as if like I were the stomach (laughs) and the stomach was so hungry for a grape. Just please just give me one grape. And he was like giggling and laughing and ate a grape. And I'm like the stomach so happy. And I was talking as the stomach, more grapes, give me more grapes. And like within 30 seconds, all the grapes were were gone. And I was like, so easy. Like that took me a minute Mm -hmm. to get compliance versus, you know, he's fighting for control. I'm not eating this food. I want that food. I'm just not going to eat. I'm going to maintain control. If I add a level of an element of humor in a very easy, fun way that doesn't take too much time or energy, suddenly he's compliant. Yeah. You do it like toothbrushing, shoes, clothes, eating, like all these different things. I think it's so important too to frame this, you know, so that's play, right? You were inviting him into play, which is yeah. a, a, a way that kids very wisely and very easily and very naturally use to do the things that they need to do in their life. They have not separated the work of life from play yet for most kids. Most kids, it's still very close to them and it's their language, right? And so I think it's really important to differentiate this from being manipulative, right? Mm -hmm. So we are not manipulating the child. We're speaking their language. We are dropping into play with them in a way that will make kind of what they need to do a little bit easier. You know, like, how can we just make this a little bit easier, a little bit more fun? And what a beautiful skill to to have, like in your life. I mean, there's things that like, oh my gosh, laundry is my least favorite thing to do. If I can make it playful, it goes so much faster. I'm really 
not very good at making it playful. But when my five-year-old folds laundry with me, oh my gosh, we have so much fun doing it together. You know, should we like, we make the little things that we're folding talk, you know, and I mean, and it's, it's so much fun. Their kids are so wise in the way that they use play and we can join them in that. I think, oh, play is such a, a lovely tool. You know, I used to think that it was a form of manipulation, but I really don't think it that way anymore. I really think that it is a, you know, when we go to a foreign country, you know, and we go to a place where we, you know, that language is not our first language. There's nothing more respectful to the folks that live there than at least attempting to speak their language. You know, there's nothing more respectful than that. And if kids' languages play, then what could be more respectful than attempting to speak their language when they've got to do hard things? And in my experience, very few children can resist like the shoe monster who wants to eat their toes when (laughs) you're trying to get the shoes on when you go out the door. Very few children can can resist that. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And you you can translate it to kids of different ages. Like Mm -hmm. that's great for like a three or four or five year old. I'm like, oh no, 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 there are ways to do it for kids in primary school and middle school and high school. It just, it looks very different. So take a moment and think about, okay, what would make kids of those age, those ages laugh? And maybe it wouldn't be like, making things talk but even for some primary school like I've used like foreign languages and my accents are shameful like I would <laughs> if an adult heard me try, I, and anyone in any other country heard me try and it's horrible but the kids love it and yeah they are then fully engaged or like teens you, maybe it's through like gifts or jokes or memes or something that feels a little bit more their level but you know whatever you can do to get them to laugh or to experience that level of humor will, will flip them up to the top of the brain which we want yeah, I love that. Yes, my kids also enjoy when I use an accent. That's also helpful. And there will be times where I will be kind of being playful with my eight-year-old and she's like, mom, I know what you're doing, but okay, let's do it. <laughs> you know, like she was like, here for it. Even though like she wants me to know, like she knows that I'm just, you know, being playful because we got to get yep. this done, but she's still here for it. You know, I, I mean, I think that that's beautiful. I Do you have other examples of like what playfulness would look like for the tweens and teens? Because I know we have a, a few of those folks who listen to this podcast and then my kids aren't there yet. So I haven't practiced that yeah. as much. Do you have some it's, ideas? It's definitely harder because they are a more challenge. Like if you have like a comedian, like those that age group is the hardest to like break and get them to laugh. <laughs> but I have done a lot of memes and gifts, like funny images online or funny things online. I've done a lot with like note writing too, like kind of silly, mm-hmm. funny, playful notes because it seems to remove the energy and it's more like it's coming from the note and not from the person. And they know that it's coming from the person, but teens see and tweens too seem pretty receptive to note taking, especially if it's a note that like, incites them to say something back, like the note Mm. taking back and forth or note taking, note writing. So I do a lot of the notes and sometimes just like breaking out in a little bit of dance. Like they they act kind of embarrassed at first, but I think that internally, like they're like, oh, this is really funny. This is like my energy is shifting and changing. I'm not going to participate because I'm too cool for that. But inside they're feeling that shift. Mm -hmm. Or even just like, oh my gosh, this is so mortifying. I just got to get this to stop. And so I'll do these things just to get it to stop. (laughs) I mean, imagine the energy of like a child getting you to stop in that situation versus like a heated head to head, like verbal argument. Like it's very different energy that is being exchanged. When you're laughing with people, when you are, you know, 
joking around when you're having fun and playing you're also connecting right so this builds Mm -hmm. these are things that rather than rupturing a relationship with your child actually build and maintain Mm -hmm. the relationship i think we often think that conflict is by its very nature disconnecting and really conflict has the potential of course to be disconnecting but it also has the potential to be very connecting very an opportunity to hear and understand and connect on a deeper level with someone yeah oh that was beautiful well lauren thank you so much where can people find you and learn more from you yeah, the best place is probably uh, the website, thebehaviorhub.com. You can email any avenue on there for coaching support, or there's quite a few online courses all around these topics we discussed today. If not, social media is a second alternative, not quite as interactive on there, but either of those spots would be easy access to me and uh, Great. free resources. Okay, we'll have all of those in the show notes. And I encourage you all to go out and check out what Lauren's got going on. She's got so much great stuff. And I really appreciate this conversation with you today. Thank you. No, thank you. Okay, so thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.